Hello, everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. My name is Victor. And I'm Chris. And today we will be talking to you about a case study of, of the American Care Act was done, how Congress managed to pass the same bill both through the Senate and then the House, and how Congress actually then used a different procedure to amend the bill that they passed a week earlier. Right. Um, so essentially we're just going through the whole history, whole congressional history of the American Care Act in Congress. Uh, before we start, I actually want to thank a couple of people for their support of this podcast. I want to thank uh, Claudia, she knows who she is, uh, for some material she sent me regarding parliamentary procedure in Germany, which we might do in a later episode. I also want to thank uh, Alex, and she knows who she is, for the microphone sh that she gifted me to help record this episode. So hopefully we have a better sound quality in this episode. All right. Anyway. To start, basically, while many of you have heard of the policy considerations in the American Care Act, we really wanted to go in depth on the procedure that was done to actualize its passage. Right. Because, uh, but just before we go on, Victor, could you tell the audience what exactly the common name or like the popular name of the American Care Act is? Sure. So the American Care Act was colloquially termed as Obamacare particularly by the Republican Party, but at some point I believe even the Democrats embraced that name. Right. So the American Care Act, as it's known more formally, and in fact that's not even the full name of the act, <laughs> but the American Care Act is what it's known as more formally. Obamacare is it's known in other circles or in a political setting as well. So the passage of this bill was pretty complicated because it involved... Uh, several different votes in the House, the Senate back in the House again, and then and then it involved a repeat of that because of several different things that happened, which we all we will all go over. Right. It's a really great highlight of actually how the the, the legislative process is actually supposed to work. Anyway, though, it's kind of a great showcase of that because a lot of bills go through a similar process; they're just not as publicized and as important. But it's a great highlight of just how legislation works generally yes although to be more frank it, there are some things that weren't done in this in this bill that the right way to do it would have also involved doing and the primary thing that wasn't done was democrats didn't hold a conference committee for the original obamacare bill because that would give more opportunities for Republicans to filibuster. Mm -hmm. And they would have had to invoke cloture, I think, three more times than they did <laughs> in this procedure. So we will we will discuss that during the during the time period. But anyway, so let's start with the overview of what happened with Obamacare. So most people don't know is that Obamacare was actually a set of two bills. There was one overall bill that was generally agreed upon by the senators, the Democratic senators in the House, not in the House, but only in the Senate. And this was agreed to by all the senators and was essential to getting the bill passed in the Senate because the Senate had exactly 60 Democrats and every, <laughs> every single Democrat had to sign off on the bill if they wanted to pass it with only Democratic support. And to pass the bill 
in actuality without without having to worry about the Republican filibusters. Because if you have less than 60 votes in support of a piece of legislation, the other so side can essentially filibuster at length without worrying about... Being overridden. Yeah, exactly. So once you have 60 votes in the Senate, you can invoke a procedure known as cloture that essentially brings debate to a close, but it doesn't allow you to fully vote on it just then and there. You have to wait a while, you have to go through the formal procedure, and you have to make sure that you get rid of any other delaying tactics the other side may have. And what was the other bill, though? I think you mentioned that there were a couple yes. bills. And the second bill is essentially a bill written after the first bill was passed that could then go through a process known as reconciliation, which does not require 60 votes in the Senate. So essentially, the second bill was written to amend the first bill, but because it went through reconciliation, it could only touch certain topics. So it couldn't really amend anything at will. It could only amend what was appropriate or what was allowed under reconciliation of the original bill. And the first bill that was passed, that was just the Senate version, essentially, which the House just agreed to, was a bill that that passed like a week before the second bill, which was reconciliation, which both houses passed with slim majorities, whereas the first bill was passed by 60 votes in the Senate and by a, a pretty slim majority in the House, but it was agreed to in both chambers. Mm -hmm. So let's discuss this first bill. This bill is when Democrats were essentially trying to get agreement of their entire caucus in the Senate. So essentially... President Obama was more concentrated in the Senate at this point because the Senate requires a high threshold in order to pass a bill, which was three-fifths vote, 60 senators, whereas in the House, passing a bill is, is essentially, due to the rules, trivial because you only need to get majority. In actuality, it ended up that the House needed a lot of convincing for this particular legislation, but in gross terms it is a lot easier to pass a bill in the house than in the senate right and it's worth noting that at this time both the house and the senate were controlled by democrats right yes both the house and senate had were controlled by democrats and this is like the first time in a generation that 60 votes are of one party in the senate so the democrats really wanted to use their votes for something yeah there's a big expectation uh during this congressional term that you know legislative things were going to happen because the president and the house and the senate were all democrats and there was a supermajority so the expectation was that this was going to be sort of one of the biggest uh, pieces of legislation since some of the initial like uh, social uh, like welfare bills exactly and also the previous uh, president uh, george w bush his major achievement for example that he's known for which is uh the Bush era tax cuts were done through reconciliation. So, no president in a while had been able to achieve enough legislative um, superiority, I guess, or legislative um, numbers in the House and Senate in order to be able to pass any legislation, re regardless of the opposition of the minority party. The bill that became the ACA, the American Care Act, was actually first called the Service Members Home Ownership Tax Act of 2019. This was a bill that was passed by the House and had full bipartisan support, essentially. It was a, a small bill. It wasn't particularly well-known politically. It was uh, just a bill that essentially House members had come up with between themselves that seemed like there was a lot of bipartisan agreement on and that both parties had passed. 
and supported in the House. The reason this bill passed in the House first was because in the Constitution origination clause. In fact, in Article 1, Section 7, Clause 1, there's a language that states all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as in other bills. So essentially, any bill that incurs a tax or any bill that the House has interpreted to mean uh, apportions money, essentially, to different parts of the federal branch, essentially, it must originate with the House of Representatives. So in order to comply with this formal requirement, what the Senate did is it found a bill that the House passed and simply decided to amend it in its entirety. Eventually, it also amended the title as well, but that was actually the last step in the process. Right. The full bill was done through amending the bill in its entirety by striking all the language in the bill after the essentially the title and, and the replacing it. Clause. Yes, essentially, or the enacting clause, which is just be hereby resolved by both houses of Congress or whatever the authors chose for that bill, and instead replacing it with an amendment, which the uh, House Majority Member proposed, and this amendment was essentially the agreed-upon text of Obamacare by the 60 senators, and then there was an amendment, and then just to further satisfy the last few senators who I think were wavering, uh, Harry Reid made an amendment to this amendment to basically convince all 60 senators who were Democrats to vote in favor of these two amendments, and then finally the actual bill, so that it could be passed in the Senate. Right, and it's where it's also it should be like just in case anyone's confused about this whole, the Senate just took up a bill that was sitting like that the House had passed and it was just sitting in the Senate. That's not necessarily an uncommon thing. Oftentimes, the Senate will keep a couple bills in its back pocket once the House has already passed them that do count as uh, revenue sort of bills because the Senate wants to have the ability to essentially write its own revenue bills when it wants to. Um, and since they can't actually write their own, they allow a bill that might have support in the House but wouldn't necessarily get passed in the Senate to just sit um, unsort of worked on until they actually have a use for it. And then they'll do things like repeal, or not repeal, but rather substitute new text entirely for something. So it's not like this process itself wasn't necessarily uncommon, but the the scale at which it was used is perhaps maybe a strange thing. Well, yeah, and also, I mean, I think it goes against the spirit of the origination clause, but it does comply with its formal yeah. requirements yes. that the bill originate in the House. <coughs> uh, I would agree. <laughs> so, it's actually the House of Representatives is the one who's actually primarily responsible for enforcing this requirement. Um, the House, usually, when the Senate originates a bill that is in violation of the origination clause, will just simply refuse to consider it. So, they have a blue... They have a, process in the house known as the blue slip slip process so the blue slip process is a process which basically says this bill originated in the senate it's a revenue bill we're just not going to consider it at all um, so that actually ha happens every once in a while even though they know of origination um, every once in a while it seems like uh, the house has to repass a piece of legislation the senate passed and the senate has to repass it because it's um doesn't formally comply with the origination clause because I think the House has a more expanded view than 
one may simply view in the Constitution. As I said previously, the House not only considers revenue-raising bills that are strictly revenue-raising bills, but I'm pretty sure it also considers bills that, for example, say that this amount of money shall be distributed to this uh, department, this amount of money shall be distributed to this other department, basically the functionings of government, right. as also being under the origination clause. So after uh, Senator Harry Reid, he submitted his amendment to to amend the this House bill. Uh, there was essentially a lot of Republican opposition, as you would expect. So in order to really even get a vote on this amendment, you would need 60 votes because the Senate requires ending debate on every single debatable motion before you can vote on it. So an amendment is a debatable motion. So this amendment needed to... Uh, in order for this amendment to come to a vote, one needs to invoke cloture. But since Republicans only had 40 senators, this was uh, 2000. This was late 2009 in the Senate. Uh, then anyone could actually, uh, then the whole Democratic Caucus united could actually pass this amendment, and then the the bill. Uh, then on this, uh, so then afterwards before they actually came and agreed to vote on this amendment uh, harry reed also made a secondary amendment to the primary amendment uh, which also essentially would insert a whole title and a whole a whole section essentially after the the first the first part of the bill so essentially by doing this he also submitted a secondary amendment that then you really couldn't amend again so this would basically once closure is invoked there wouldn't really be any further amendments that could be made to like uh, waste time basically and and why to... why is that is there some sort of parliamentary rule that says you can't amend an amendment to an so, amendment so, so typically the the parliamentary rule that's assumed to be um, allowed like the essentially in parliamentary procedure you can only amend something twice so you can amend the original bill and then you can amend that amendment the senate has a few rules where there are something known as amendment trees which i guess in theory have a third amendment after harry submitted this amendment to his amendment there was a closure that was invoked on this amendment to his amendment eventually once all the democrats were on board once closure was invoked in order to prevent the minority from interfering and essentially trying to delay the process, uh, Harry Reid asked the presiding officer to recognize him. And since the majority leader in the Senate by convention and by precedent can always has the right to be recognized first, uh, this, the, essentially the majority leader could at any point submit as many amendments as are allowed by the rules before anyone else could submit these amendments. Because basically the only person who can submit amendments is the person recognized. So be, prior to declaring cloture, the majority leader essentially introduced a few amendments in a tactic known as filling up the uh, amendment tree in the Senate. So what this does is it prevents any other party from making further amendments to the bill or to any amendment to the bill by essentially making it so that there is nowhere the amendment can be considered. So once he introduced his final amendment to his amendment, Harry then proceeded to remove any ability for the minority party to submit any dilatory amendments by first saying 
that he was going to amend his amendment to the amendment. So this was the secondary amendment, essentially. Right, and to be clear, though, it doesn't just prevent the Republicans or anybody else from making just dilatory amendments. It prevents anybody from making any more amendments because yes. of this concept of the amendment tree being full. So there are no longer any parliamentary acceptable, like, no, within the rules, there are no longer any emotions that could, or amendments that could be made because all of the potential slots, we have this primary amendment, secondary amendment, and then perfecting amendment, all of those slots are full, and then all of the potential other places you might make other changes, he also fills up at the same time. So it's not just dilatory amendments, which are never necessarily in order, and could be ruled out on that basis. It's any amendment, even one that might actually have sought to make changes that were relevant to the bill, but perhaps not in favor of the 60 Democrats that actually had to get corralled into voting on this. Because as part of the political background of this, there wasn't necessarily complete support for every provision, and some bargaining and horse trading had to kind of go on to get all 60 Democrats um, to actually agree on a single piece of legislation. Exactly. And also some Democrats with maybe Republican support might have gotten the 51 votes needed for a certain amendment. But by not even bringing up the amendment as a vote, then you don't even have to worry about like potential defections or potentially the Republicans actually bring up an amendment that has enough support to divide the Democrats and then they can just filibuster it as long as they want. And you will never be able to invoke cloture because the actual rest of the Democrats don't want to vote on that amendment either because they're not in support of it. So essentially this removes any ability for the the other party to essentially try to divide the 60-vote Democrats, essentially, the 60-vote Democratic caucus. Yeah. So the way that he filled up these amendments was technically through something known, some, some very simple but yet germane amendment that he introduced in a different place. <laughs> so at the time when you have an amendment to a bill pending and an amendment to that amendment pending, according to Senate procedure, you can have a few more possible amendments that can be introduced and harry reed wanted to get rid of all these amendments or get rid of all these possibilities to introduce amendments because further amendments would be debatable so that means you would need to invoke cloture even more times right now he only needs to invoke cloture three times he needs to vote cloture on his amendment to the amendment he needs to vote cloture on the original amendment and then he needs to vote invoke cloture on the final bill right now harry reed has three votes to invoke closure that he has to take if he wants to uh, reduce the amount of closure votes or to not add any more additional closure votes then he fills up amendments that nobody actually wants to vote on or nobody actually cares about so what he first did is he added a amendment to amend his secondary amendment so amend his amendment to the amendment to say that the provisions of this act shall become effective five days after enactment and this five days is arbitrary, but as you will see, I think Harry did it just so he can keep effective track of the, his amendments later on. Then, after he proposed this five-day uh, after enactment, that was his amendment to his amendment to his amendment. Typically, this would be a third-order amendment. Typically, it's not allowed. But Harry, but technically, this amendment could be made, even though. I believe it will be ruled out of order once they actually go into considering and voting on this. It might actually be allowed under the rules 
which I assume Harry Reid consulted the parliamentarian at the time, and the parliamentarian probably said that although this is not typically allowed based on some rule of perfecting amendments, based on some rule of Senate types of amendments, it will actually be allowed in this specific case. So that's why Harry Reid filled up that potential amendment. And then his next step was to prevent any more amendments to his original amendment. Uh, his original amendment was called Amendment Number 2786, and then his secondary amendment was called Amendment Number 3276, and the original bill was H.R. 3590. So his original primary amendment was Amendment 2786. He proposed two amendments to this bill, to this original amendment. So first he proposed to make it four days in the original amendment, and then he proposed to amend that amendment to make it three days. So this fills out any potential amendments that can be made to the primary amendment. So even though Republicans can no longer make perfecting amendments to his secondary amendment, they could also try making amendments to his primary amendment once he invokes closure on the secondary amendment. So what this allows Reed to do is allows him to prevent any more changes to the primary amendment from being introduced. So essentially, Harry Reid, as the majority leader, has basically disallowed Republicans to make any potential changes to the bill through the amendment process in the Senate because he's filled up all available slots that, where the bill can be amended. However, the last thing he did is he essentially uh, removed the ability of the minority caucus to do to essentially force an amendment through in another way. The last way an amendment can be adopted into a bill is known as committing the bill to a committee with instructions. So what that means is you commit a bill back to a committee and you give it certain instructions that that committee has to follow when the bill returns back to that committee. So in this sense, you can commit a bill back to a committee and you can tell the committee, when you report back on this bill, you have to, do, you have to follow these rules. And so what these rules can be is these rules can be adopt this amendment as part of the bill. So this is essentially a motion that is higher in precedence than the primary amendment that Harry Reid had. So he also made this motion in order to make sure that there was absolutely no way this bill could be filibustered or any dilatory tactics could be made to this bill. So what he did is he, he made a motion to commit H.R. 3590, the peace legislation that was going to become the American Care Act, and then he would say, with instructions to the committee that approved it, to add an amendment to it that said that this prov provision of this act shall be effective two days after enactment. <laughs> then he made an amendment to this commit instruction, because once again, committing instructions are higher order of precedence, so basically this would be essentially like a primary amendment to the instructions to change that to one day. And then he made a second order amendment to these committing instructions to change it to immediately. So essentially, there's no more possible amendments that can be made in any sort of way by the minority caucus because he's prevented any more primary amendments from being considered. He's prevented any more secondary amendments from being considered. And he's prevented any instructions to essentially bring this bill back to committee and then force that committee to amend that bill. So essentially, there's no procedural ways that this bill can be amended by the minority caucus. There are only weapons, only parliamentary weapons that can be continued to be used are simply bills to essentially table the bill or to, for example, adjourn or, or take a recess. But all of these uh, proposals they're non-debatable, so they won't, need, they won't need to have cloture invoked on them. 
once all these amendments are there, essentially now the Democrats are in charge of what amendments get heard. And also, new amendments cannot be introduced once cloture is invoked. So then once Harry Reid has made all these amendments, he immediately asks the Senate to vote on invoking cloture on his secondary amendment. Amendment 3276, the cloture vote happens, and what happens is 60 Democrats vote in the affirmative. That motion to invoke cloture is passed. So once cloture is invoked, basically only votes on the amendments to the thing that cloture is invoked on can be considered. Essentially, this motion to commit is no longer in order, so it falls as the colloquial term in the Senate is. Basically, it's no longer in order to do. Harry's commit motion fails, and so he doesn't have to worry about that one anymore. Then he makes a motion to table the amendment he made to his secondary amendment. He makes a motion to table the primary amendment amendment that he made. So he made a secondary amendment to the primary amendment, which he moved to table. And this basically allowed him to get rid of that amendment in a non-debatable way. So now there's only one thing left before they can vote on this final amendment, which was to table this third order amendment that we previously discussed. Based on parliamentary procedure in the Senate, you don't actually even need to do that. Based on past precedent in the Senate, you can just withdraw an amendment if it hasn't been formally considered by the Senate yet, which Harry Reid was allowed to do. So now the only amendments pending before the Senate that it can vote on and debate on is the secondary amendment that Reid made. And then because closure is invoked, within 30 hours, the Senate will come to a vote on the secondary amendment. What happens is the Senate comes to a vote on the secondary amendment, and then immediately, as soon as it votes in the affirmative, uh, Harry Reid fills up the amendment tree again in the same, in a similar way, but just he makes a, a secondary amendment to his primary amendment, makes a sec makes a amendment to the original bill, makes a motion to commit as well. Then he invokes cloture on the new bill, uh, sorry, on the new amendment. And then a bunch of those amendments are either withdrawn, either they fall due to the procedural rules they can only now vote on germane amendments, or he asks his Senate colleagues to table an amendment, which by doing so removes any debate on that amendment and is a non-debatable way to get rid of an amendment. And then as soon as this primary amendment is voted on after 30 hours of debate, as was allowed under cloture, then he goes right on to the main bill, uh, 3590, which is now amended to be essentially the American Care Act. And he invokes cloture on that after once again filling up the amendment tree. So, and then after that, cloture is invoked. The bill can be voted on in its entirety and it's approved. And then right after that is done, he asks unanimous consent to change the title of the bill, which Republicans for some reason agree to, and the title of the bill is changed to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Whereas I believe if they really wanted to, they could have filibustered that as well, but they would have needed to invoke cloture one more time. But I think this was already like on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and I don't think they wanted to spend more time on Christmas in the Senate. So just to recap then, so first, uh, Senator Reid has this second so he, he has the original bill. He makes an amendment to that, substituting 
the American Care Act. So initially there's this American serviceman's, you know, tax break thing that the House passed, but is sitting in the Senate. Then Harry Reid proposes an amendment to that, which effectively substitutes a new bill after the enactment clause, which is, you know, substantially the American Care Act. And then he introduces a secondary amendment to that. And then he fills up that secondary amendments, amendment tree, makes all the necessary cloture motions and votes on that. It passes. Then he makes all the necessary, you know, fills up an amendment tree, makes all the necessary motions to pass this primary amendment, which is the American Care Act being substituted. And then finally, with it substituted, he then vote, uh, fills up an amendment tree for the, pro the actual bill itself and goes through the same process all the way through again. Um, just to clarify one thing, mm -hmm. he, I think he only had one or maybe not even any uh, amendments to the primary bill because the Senate also has a presidential rule that says you can't amend something once it's already been amended. So he doesn't need to do as much for the primary bill because he basically struck it out in its entirety with his substitute amendment. Mm -hmm. So essentially he only has to do like maybe a commit motion. So an abbreviated sort of filling up of a tree, but in each of these steps, just he goes through what effectively is making sure that every procedural way to modify that bill or to change it or somehow prevent it from going forward to the next stage of legislation, he preemptively prevents that using his precedence in the chamber because of his uh, you know position as the majority leader. Yes, he basically prevents any way any way to change the bill in a debatable way essentially all right so is this sort of thing common in the senate because i mean obviously in the house the speaker of the house often and the rule in conjunction with the rules committee effectively determines how things will be considered and whether or not certain amendments will be taken and all of this and that's just kind of the standard operating procedure in the house but is that generally how legislation is passed in the Senate, or is that was this sort of exceptional or unique or somehow noteworthy? I think it's not that unique, but it is definitely noteworthy because um, it's usually not done actually. But for example, several bills that are seen as quote unquote important do seem to have this happen to them for in order to prevent any, I guess, lay amendments that the majority leader or whoever whatever the power brokers in the caucus are don't agree to so for example i know that several of the patriot acts were passed in the senate in a similar way in order to prevent any amendments being done to them because even though like a senator might support the patriot act politically they might want to amend it to be less strict or they don't like certain provisions but they were prevented from doing so by also filling out up the amendment tree. Right. And just as some background, because I, I feel like some people might not also be aware, but so we've really only addressed the legislative process once the, the bill hit the, the, the Senate chamber itself. But it, of course, before that, there was an extensive committee process where, um, I mean, of course, because Democrats were in control, they mainly shaped it. But there was a long process in the committee stage where um, Democratic leadership shaped the bill well before it ever actually got to all of this sort of interesting amendment filling stuff. So it wasn't as though there was no it wasn't as though Harry Reid sort of just sprung a bill on on everybody um, out of, you know, 
whole like out of out of the out of the blue this was something that had been thoroughly debated already um yeah consensus had been built amongst democrats and then all this sort of procedural stuff to stop any further modification was done so this was already an extensively crafted bill which is one more reason maybe that you know democrats especially wouldn't want anything to be changed at all because it had already taken a long time to get to this point and also just to add to that i think it was mostly the democrats in the senate because definitely the house democrats were a bit taken aback by the fact that they wouldn't have a real say in this bill so actually the plan was after the senate passed this bill in the senate after christmas basically or on christmas the plan was to go back and have a conference committee between the house and senate in order to resolve differences and really get this done through uh, through the full legislative process however this was eventually scrapped because Democrats realized that they would need to take three more cloture votes to do so. So they thought that it would take too much time because even though, as we said, you, you will get to the eventual vote on a bill, each cloture motion is 30 hours where basically the Senate can't do anything else but debate that bill. So once cloture is invoked, yes, you will vote, take a vote in 30 hours, but essentially the Senate has to essentially spend those 30 hours not doing anything until closure is invoked, which prevents the Senate from voting to confirm appointees to the executive branch or to the judicial branch, prevents the Senate from doing a lot of things. Um, And it's just not, you know, yeah, it's just, if you were a senator, would you really want to sit through 30 hours of that three times when everyone knows, including the people who are extending this uh, which would be the republicans everyone knows that with the 60 votes that the democrats have they are going to pass things everything they want is going to happen this is entirely sort of just delaying tactics at that stage yeah so their procedure is basically going to be just talk with the leadership in the house and senate and the executive and come up with something everyone could agree to and then just essentially pass those amendments in the house and then agree to them in the senate which might have only required one or two cloture votes essentially the goal was to do this through cloture and the goal was to essentially do this through the normal process so that everything is done right and at that time when this was the plan there were 60 senators in the senate of course the earlier summer actually senator ted kennedy had died and there was a democratic appointment from the governor to the senate that replaced him so the, the 60 senators still remained, but there was a special election in Massachusetts in January of 2010 to elect the replacement senator for Senator Ted Kennedy. So while the Democrats had passed a bill in the Senate that was essentially the American Care Act, but would have needed later amendment and agreement with the House, it was essentially a bill in final form that was ready to be passed by the House if needed. And I think they never publicly stated it, but to me, in retrospect, it seems clear they did this because they wanted to be sure that if they didn't win the Senate race in Massachusetts, they would still have a functional piece of legislation right. that could be enacted. Yeah, I think it's worth digging into that a little bit more. So Ted Kennedy, um, one of the actual Kennedys from, you know, related to JFK and, and Robert Kennedy, he uh, was one of the major drivers of the healthcare 
reform sort of process. Uh, a lot of people on both sides of the aisle had lots of respect for him, and he was largely considered as sort of integral to the process. Um, although he, at this time in 2009, I think perhaps even earlier, he had been diagnosed with brain cancer and was undergoing treatment, although eventually it became clear that treatment was not going to work. He was not going to, you know, continue to live. And when he did, so when he, he was elected, that, that he was part of that 60 senator majority. When he passed away, uh, the sen- I think um, Governor Duvall of Massachusetts had an interim appointment of a Democrat maintaining that 60. And then there's another uh, election for the, the seat to replace this sort of interim candidate. And the re- Republicans won, which was kind of a, a, a surprise. It wasn't necessarily expected. And that meant that there's no longer that 60 uh, vote majority or supermajority. There's now, you know, uh, what, a 59 to 41 votes. And that meant that you could no longer guarantee um, a filibuster proof sort of passage of the bill anymore. So it kind of radically reshaped what the pro- legislative process is going to look like going forward. Exactly. And so now what happened was the Democrats, I mean, President Obama and Harry Reid and the House Speaker Pelosi and probably a lot of leadership, they thought about like what was the best way forward. And they realized that there was no way they were going to pass anything through the Senate again without invoking reconciliation. So really what happened now, it was basically up to President Obama and the other leadership to convince the House Democratic Caucus to support this bill in order to get it passed as and become a piece of legislation because nothing was really going through the Senate again without 60 votes. Right. And the Democrats no longer had 60 votes in the Senate. Yeah. And it's again important to note that just letting, like, once this sort of Senate majority was lost, or supermajority rather was lost, it wasn't really an option politically for President Obama, certainly, but also for much of the Democratic Party to sort of walk away from the legislation. Um, it, it might be hard to remember, or maybe not, but this was sort of the landmark piece of legislation for Obama. This was his showcase bill. Like, it had already taken much longer than expected to sort of negotiate the shape of the bill. Um, so at this stage, I don't think really any of the Democrats were really willing to say, oh, especially the House Democrats, weren't really willing to say, you know what, we're not going to get the perfect bill we wanted, so we're just going to walk away from the table. Things had gone too far along, and so they were kind of forced to either take what was an okay piece of legislation, but not maybe not perfect, versus sort of stopping this momentum and really probably not having the ability to pass anything like this again for the rest of uh, at least Obama's term in office. Yeah, so exactly. So basically Obama went back and convinced enough House Democrats to vote in favor of this bill. And as I said previously, it's much easier to pass a bill in the House than the Senate. So he convinced just a slim majority, it was 220 votes in favor to like 211 against, or it was 219 for this bill, 211 against, to vote in favor of it. And this basically was enough to get over that 216 threshold at the time. Yeah, and, and again, like, 
if you look at the fact that the Senate got all, every one of the Democrats in the Senate were able to vote for this bill versus the fact that there was only a slim majority of Democrats, it shows really that this wasn't necessarily at all what the House really was happy with in the end. Yeah, but it really shows also, I just, if you step back, Mm -hmm. it really shows the modern power imbalance between the House and Senate in passage of legislation because the Senate essentially created such strict rules on passing bills that in a sense it's actually ironically has served to make the Senate even more powerful in passage of legislation because basically whatever the Senate says is the bill nine times out of ten be the bill because otherwise there will be no bill. Right because it's easier to sort of find coalitions in the House than in the Senate. And also the House can pass anything with a one one with a majority vote essentially so right you don't even need that right but so to get back to the actual sort of track so we've had the senate pass it pass this this bill with its 60 vote majority and then the it's the house's turn to either pass the bill or to amend a bill and make recommendations back to the senate or to do whatever basically the bill is now in the house again and the house has to decide what to do with it and it decides to pass the bill with that slim majority but after the house passes it what happens then because presumably you know it, it didn't just immediately pass i think as you've sort of hinted at after that which could have been if the house had just wholesale agreed to everything that was in the senate bill then that could have been the end of it yeah but that's not what happened so essentially what happened was everyone knew that there were some things that needed to be fixed in the original bill because no one really assumed that that would be the final version of the bill when it was passed. It took a few months for the Democrats to figure out what they would do because this bill was passed end of December and the final Obamacare Act wasn't enacted until March of the next year. So what happened was President Obama and the Democratic caucus leader Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid, convinced the Democratic caucus in the House to pass the bill in its original form as passed by the Senate. And then then Harry Reid promised to use reconciliation to pass basically the House amendments that the House wanted to make to the original bill through a way where the filibuster wasn't going to impact the bill. There was a lot of concern that some states are getting preferential treatment in the Obamacare, which was essentially done to get the uh, vote to enact the filibuster in the Senate. And there was a lot of other procedures that were that were put in place into the bill to basically just to get it to that 60-vote threshold in the Senate that some, I think, dem- Democrats in the House were very, very wary against. Like one example of that was a provision to essentially pay or subsidize something in Nebraska which basically the Democrats later got rid of in the reconciliation process. So there was some sort of like pork uh, sort of riders attached there. Yes. Uh, and people, once they sort of were realizing, oh, this is going to be the bill we have to pass. Well, actually, I think as it happened, I think a lot of people like the, in the media and in other outlets started pointing out, hey, some of these provisions are pretty um, odd that there they're, they're sort of like one or two lines in a huge bill that somehow grants these random constituencies endowments and, and grants of funds that weren't being shared by others and weren't necessarily directly related to healthcare and things like that. So there were some things that looked a little sketchy on close examination. 
basically. So yeah, for example, Nelson, who was the senator from Nebraska, wanted basically pork barrel spending in Nebraska. So one of the things he did was he approved uh, higher Medicaid payments for Nebraska, but no other state in the legislation. Right. So things like that had to be worked out. Is that really like was? So is that like the 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 scope of reconciliation? That's the sort of things, or were there any sort of more substantial substantive changes? No, no, there was substantial substantive changes. I mean, there were, from what I understand, most of the changes were basically just like how money was spent, how who's going to get paid what. They were essentially just very, po- in a sense, they were policy changes, but they were, but they weren't changes like that couldn't be done through like reconciliation, like changes that anyone with 26 and under can get, sorry, anyone under 26 years old can like remain in their parents' health insurance. Some of those changes could only be done through the normal legislative process, whereas reconciliation is basically meant to closely follow the congressional budget resolution of the current year in order to reduce our deficit in, in a sense, or to only change it by what's consistent with the budget resolution. So it's a process which was essentially, at first, the mentality behind creating reconciliation was to make it so that we wouldn't have these enormous spending bills each year with no way to pay for them essentially so that if possible you could work down the deficit okay there was i guess some less support for these changes in the senate so after the house agrees to the original aca language that was passed in the senate they also quickly passed a bill that used the reconciliation instructions for the 2010 financial year and they actually followed the pathway laid out by the by the president, by the Senate Democrats, and by the House Democrats the previous year where they were originally planning to just pass the health care bill, or at least having a backup plan of just passing a health care bill through reconciliation. The previous year when they had that backup plan to pass just through reconciliation, they passed a budget resolution, a concurrent resolution that would allow them to do that. Then the next year, they used that those instructions from the previous year to pass basically a health care bill that modified the American care that was already enacted to be to the House's liking, essentially. And this was done simply by passing legislation in the House, which is really easy to do. Then it, it goes through reconciliation in the Senate, which allows a vote to basically come into play. Right. So, th- so this sort of use of reconciliation was one way to overcome the filibuster because they didn't have to worry about filibustering since there was already a built-in time limit, right? Yes. Exactly. Okay. So so they still, of course, they were still going to be able to pass this legislation because they had far more than 50 votes, but they didn't have that 60 votes, so they needed a different method rather than just typical cloture motions Yes. to pass things in the Senate. Reconciliation only works, and why it's so narrow is simply because both sides seem to be actually very collegial about it. So both sides have basically come to the agreement that Whatever the parliamentarian says is okay in reconciliation, they will agree by, and they will never overrule the parliamentarian. Whereas, whenever something comes up to reconciliation, the majority party in the Senate would usually make a ruling that, oh, this is what the parliamentarian said, this is subject, this is not subject to reconciliation, it can't be in the bill anymore. Whereas, really, what the majority party could do is they could simply rule in the opposite way of the parliamentarian, and then if the other side decided to appeal that ruling, they would never have enough votes to overturn the, the ruling. So really, this is all on an honor system done. 
the honor system is the parliamentarian gets to actually go through and figure out what the correct ruling is, and we all agree to abide by it. That's how reconciliation works. So when the bill made it to the Senate, there was two parts of the bill that the Republicans objected to that the, the Senate parliamentarian actually said were not subject to reconciliation, but they were known as extraneous matter in reconciliation procedures, and essentially it was uh, language that would have limited decreases in Pell Grants based on the changes that were enacted where the Republicans were basically just objecting to anything they could potentially object to. And they won this small victory, which in a real sense didn't really get them much. And then they also just, and then the second thing struck was just some technical language that actually was really implementing the first thing that was struck. Right. So once the language was struck, the Senate could proceed to vote on the House Reconciliation Resolution, and they passed it pretty quickly. But because stuff was struck, it's actually constructively treated as an amendment by the Senate when language is struck. So this struck language was essentially a Senate amendment to the bill that the House originally passed. So then when the House came back to that bill as passed as amended by the Senate, the House basically agreed to agree to the Senate amendments and repass the same bill with these two struck provisions. Right. And then once that happened, the full Obamacare came into effect because both the House and the Senate had passed the same equivalent bill and then the President had agreed to it. Mm-hmm. To summarize, the American Care Act was done in two parts. The first part went through the cloture process, went through the 60 votes required to pass any legislation in the Senate. Then in order to do a quick fix after the Democrats lost their supermajority in the Senate, the they added they introduced a second bill to use the reconciliation process to perfect the original passed bill in the Senate and essentially fix the law after it became the law. Right. So do you have any other closing thoughts on that issue? Well, I think another closing thought is that it is very difficult to pass something in the Senate when the minority party is in complete opposition to you, even when you have a supermajority. You have to be basically on point in your parliamentary procedure at all times. I was reading some news articles about the Senate parliamentarian, and basically his role, he tries to remain neutral, and in that sense, he does not offer advice on how to get something done. The advice that he offers is, I, you give me a question, I will tell you the answer to that question, basically. So he doesn't actually tell the majority leader, the minority leader, how they can get something done. He just says, this is the answer to your question on parliamentary procedure. But a lot of the, the majority leader and the minority leader also employ their own lawyers, uh, who, who's, whose job is oftentimes to know the similar things as the parliamentarian. So yes, it, it would not be surprising if they effectively knew what they wanted to do. And then we're going to him because he is the best resource in the end to make sure everything was above board. Yeah, but also just to add to that, the majority and minority leader have been in the Senate for such a long time. They also are probably very well versed on Senate procedures, so they probably know, yes. know the lay of the land. They just want to make sure that their thoughts on the procedure are backed by the parliamentarian because for some reason the parliamentarian hasn't become a symbol of partisanship as everything else has in the Senate. So for now, the senators seem to be listening to the parliamentarians. 
I wonder if there'll if there will ever be like a, a reconciliation procedure where the majority party just simply ignores the advice of the parliamentarian and rules whatever way they like. Because well, I I imagine it could happen, seeing as how lots of what were previously sort of well-established rules in the Senate have been trampled underfoot recently. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. Because really, in terms of procedure, if the presiding officer disagrees with the parliamentarian, they can rule whatever way they like. And then, basically, they can rule something in order when it actually should not be in a reconciliation bill. And then they could just, and if the minority party decides to object by appealing a decision to the chair, that's a debatable motion. They could filibuster that, but then the majority party can always just table the debatable motion, and then they're on their way to uh, passing whatever they want through reconciliation. So, I guess, yeah, that was our uh, examination of the uh, passage of Obamacare and the American Care Act. Um, So the next two things we're going to talk about are going to be a little bit shorter. Uh, We're going to look at... um, sort of the story of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., who was a United States congressman who had some interesting um, procedural things sort of happen to him in the in light of some of his, uh, well, rather what some of his uh, fellow congressmen felt were his uh, personal failures that prevented him from effectively doing his job. And then we're also going to be looking at some... Uh, cases that have recently come out in various uh, federal courts regarding uh, the legislative powers to subpoena presidential tax records. So to sort of dive into the Adam Clayton Smith, or uh, rather Adam Clayton Powell Jr. uh, story. So just to give some background on who this guy was. um, So Powell was the first, uh, well, one of the first African-Americans in, uh, rather, sorry, he was the first African-American representative from uh, New York. He represented the sort of congressional district where Harlem is situated. Um, he was unsurprisingly a member of the Democratic Party. And he was, during sort of the, the, the time that we're going to be looking at his uh, achievements, he was chair of the Education and Labor Committee. Um, now, what, I, what we're going to look at is during his tenure as the chair, he was accused of a lot of allegations of corruption, as well as a few other legal issues that caused his committee to effectively strip him of much of the chair's powers, and then, in, in turn, ended up having the Democratic caucus attempt to prevent him from even really taking his seat in Congress at all, as these sort of legal troubles and these charges of corruption mounted and further. So, in the end, actually, his whole sort of arc ended up um, coming to a head in a Supreme Court case where the court had to actually determine whether or not all these actions that his uh, conference mates or rather caucus mates had taken against him were even allowed. But just to sort of uh, dive into what exactly he was accused of. So Powell was accused initially of just basically being corrupt, just not being a very you know, upstanding congressman. He was accused of absenteeism. Um, interestingly, so he served as chairman of the Labor Committee, ed- Labor and Education Committee for about six years. And during that time, 
His attendance rate in Congress hovered between 66% of and 49% of actual of all the actual meetings. Uh, and this was in contrast at the time the average member's attendance around 79 to 88% range. So as the chair of the committee, he was absent a lot more often than the rest of his committee members. Um, and this actually tied into another one of the, the things he was accused of, which was ransoming bills, which is this idea that he would hold up major legislation, which would be entered into his committee, which because it's the Education Labor Committee, a lot of important labor bills and education bills actually do come through his committee. So he would hold those up unless the House then would move on other issues that were important to Powell. However, it's worth noting that Powell would hold up mainly a lot of issues that he was passionate about were civil rights based. So he was sort of leveraging his position to try to achieve civil rights actions. But at the same time, a lot of other civil rights advocates didn't really approve of what he was doing because his ransom of bills turned a lot of people against him and made them less supportive of some of what he was doing. Um, some of the other allegations he was accused of while he was chair was, so unsurprisingly, um, congressmen have travel you know, per diems and they can have sort of easy access to flights and things like that and travel expenses paid for by the government. But it, it was increasingly coming to light that he was using flight. He, he was having the government pay for him to fly to places in Florida and in Puerto Rico. And he was using something called junketing, which is the sort of uh, scheduling a conference of sort of other political figures in other countries to, to sort of go on international vacations. He was partial going to Europe for what were allegedly junketing missions, but were uh, under scrutiny because not many people agreed that that's really what was happening so how, how did they determine whether or not it's a an actual trip um for, I, like... as i understand it so he eventually would get investigated by uh his own party um and during those investigations they basically looked at whether or not um they well they looked at the number of times he was traveling they looked at who he was traveling with and then they looked at who he said he was meeting and, and looking at all of that, they sort of were like, well, there's not necessarily good reasons for what he was doing and the the, the, the number of times he was doing it and, and with the people he was bringing, it didn't really make sense that these were actually for work. Um, so there was sort of, a lot of it was and, and more uh, inferentially, hey, these don't really, what, what he's doing isn't adding up. And that's sort of what was some of the problem for a lot of these charges of corrupt of just general corruption, because he was also accused of things like one of the other problems with this traveling ties into another allegation that he was sort of had a big problem with nepotism because he was paying. Uh, so he would a allow his wife wives to make use of his um, of government, you know, traveling to go to places like his beach houses and, and things like that and to go on these press junkets with him. But he would also be he was also and this isn't uncommon, to be fair, but he was paying one of his wives at the time uh, f through the Congress as part of his staff, even though she really, according to other staffers, didn't work for the congressman at all. So there were some issues uh, about that. Um, and then people, even within the sort of civil rights advocacy groups that he was you know, of a major figure in, those people were also criticizing him as sort of not really within the mainstream of the civil rights movement. He sort of 
viewed himself as a champion of young African Americans, or rather a younger generation of African Americans, which at the time was sort of, he was the chairman during the, the 60s, basically, uh, the sort of late 60s into the early 70s. And unsurprisingly, there's a pretty big generational gap there where you have these sort of greatest generation people and then you have the, the basically the people who were contemporaneous with the hippie movement. So you, you had some very wildly separate ideas of how civil rights should be approached amongst people here. Uh, and so there are some clashes within other civil rights leaders. So within this background of just sort of general, people were looking at him, other congressmen were looking at him and and thinking, hey, this guy's doing some things that are pretty what we would consider corrupt. And it's it's to be fair, many of the things that he was accused of in terms of just general corruption were things that many other congressmen would do. Uh, nepotism was not uncommon. Taking sort of generous travel expenses wasn't necessarily uncommon. Absenteeism also not necessarily uncommon. But it was this sort of the pattern of all of it together didn't look great and then in addition to that and the thing that really got him in trouble was he uh he got involved in a defamation lawsuit in 1960 he was sued by a woman from new york who accused her uh so he accused her of essentially being a bag woman which is sort of a money mover for corrupt new york city police who were at the time in new york city extremely corrupt and were harassing um, particularly the African-American community. So he accused this woman of moving money for her, for, for, the, for these corrupt New York police officers. This woman then, in turn, sued him for libel um, because he made these statements in the press and, and it was affecting her lifestyle. And the court ended up co uh, making a judgment in favor of this woman uh, against Powell. However, Powell maintained that he was correct throughout and refused to actually pay any of the money, um, which ended up <laughs> resulting in uh, this woman filing a second suit against Powell, alleging that he intentionally transferred property, fraudulently transferred property away from himself to avoid that property being attached, um, sort of having it taken, uh, uh, basically having the government seize that property from him to pay off the debts that he owed. Uh, and eventually that ended up, the court initially had given him a $40,000 judgment at the time, and then the amount in the second suit got raised all the way to $150,000. However, Powell still kind of refused to pay this, and the way that he refused to pay this is also rather interesting. So he could not, despite being the congressman from Harlem in New York City, he refused to go back to New York to actually, because until he went to New York, he couldn't sort of, be forced to pay because it was it was a state sort of judgment in a state court so as long as wonder, he did yeah i wonder if he could uh have his wages garnished um, by the state courts <laughs> maybe, that's interesting it doesn't seem like they were um I'm, I'm guessing maybe because he was getting paid in new york in washington dc and so the court couldn't get at his wages in washington dc from new york um but interestingly if i remember correctly so he could go into New York, but only on like days when the court were closed. So on some of the weekends, he could go into New York City, but not during most of the time. So effectively, he just, while remaining uh, congressman, he kind of had to stay out of his state 
to avoid having to get served and being forced to pay these uh, fines. But but would be, his yeah would would his immunity as a congressman the the clause that hasn't that has very little power nowadays but has some power the privilege from arrest when he's on his way to and from Congress would that uh you know apply here? that's interesting I didn't in my research see a lot of that his him making that claim um but I think it would be interesting perhaps but I also would be I would be I don't think that would have applied because. He wasn't being arrested or sued in his capacity as a congressman or in any way relating to his work in Congress. It was a private suit relating to his uh, like statements he made uh, publicly against another private individual. So I, I think because of the nature of the suit, it wasn't really a criminal suit. It was just a civil filing. Um, I don't know. I th- I, that's an interesting question. I, I didn't really come across that. What I found mainly was that he just avoided going to New York to get to, to avoid having to pay that but because of this so one of the, some of the fallout from this was that um because of the corruption all of this corruption in the background and because he was like people in congress were like the way that you're treating this woman and not paying your fines and your debts and things that were from lawful court orders are really un- in, uh, unappropriate and unacceptable so first that his actual own committee, because at the time all of this was happening, he was still the chair of the Education and Labor Committee. At that time, his committee actually revolted. Both the Democrat and Republican members voted by 27 votes to one to adopt new committee rules to totally modify Powell's powers as the chair. So part of these new rules included that if the chairman... So, like, normally the chairman had... As we've as we've mentioned in previous episodes, he basically controls the committee. So he decides if the bills that if a bill is going to leave the committee and be reported, he decides when the votes on the bills are going to happen. He 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 rules the committee sort of. But what the committee after its revolt made him do was one: if the if the chairman refused to actually act on a motion, either the existing subcommittee chairs or the entire committee in a vote were empowered to bring vote bills to a house vote or bring them out of committee basically if the chairman was refusing because as we as i said he was getting accused of sort of ransoming bills a lot and his own committee didn't really like that because they wanted the legislation they had worked on to actually come to a vote because they thought it was important so that was one change they made to prevent him from sort of being able to ransom these votes um he then the committee also required the creation of committee and subcommittee budgets and then forced regular reporting and auditing of those budgets because they also felt that he was spending committee uh, finances, you know, unjustly on these sort of press junkets, on his travel expenses and all that. So they made sure that he couldn't do that anymore. Then they specified that the chair had to call. um, So the chair basically had to call upon the speaker. So normally the chair of a committee is allowed to sort of go to the conference committees on any bills that would have been drafted but the committee then had it amended so that the chair was required to tell the speaker of the house to appoint subcommittee members to conferences on bills that they drafted rather than just allowing the chair to do it sort of what he would normally do which was make his own recommendations um they also required prompt referral of all bills to appropriate subcommittees because this is sort of the front end of ransoming bills if your committee is required to, so if if the if the house says hey this committee is going to be responsible for this bill 
once it gets to that committee, it's still the chairman's job to figure out when that's going to be worked on, who's going to work on it and all of that. But the committee forced him to promptly actually do that rather than being able to rant, hold up bills on the front end. So they, they prevented him from doing sort of holding up bills like that. Um, they also allowed or rather required weekly meetings of the committee while Congress is in session because, again, when the chair was absent, it made it difficult for them to actually meet. So they created a system where even if he was absent, the committee was still going to meet. And they created six subcommittees that sort of limited the actual scope of the chair's own public or own sort of authority. So they effectively like vastly reduced the chair's power because they were so upset with all of the way he was acting. But it continued because it wasn't just the committee that was upset. It was the at this point he had managed to upset basically the entire Democratic caucus. So, in response, because the Democrats also controlled uh, Congress at the time, in 1967, there was a subcommittee of the House administration, uh, or rather, yeah. So the House created a subcommittee to investigate him, and to investigate his use of committee funds because. Again, he was being accused of all this sort of shady sort of use of committee funds because he didn't. they didn't like his employment of his wife, and they didn't like the use of all of his travel expenses, and they didn't like the fact that for some of the traveling that he was doing, he was booking fake names, like, because he himself was aware that he was kind of doing shady traveling and excessive traveling, so he would have his staffers book things under false names just to throw off the amount of, like, make it harder for people to realize how much he was traveling. Um, so the committee made its report. It came back very negative of him. And in response to that report, the Democratic leadership eventually then entirely stripped him of his chairmanship. And then it excluded him, or, or rather it voted to exclude him from his congressional seat. Um, and then after the report came out, because so first they excluded him from the congressional seat during the course of the investigation. Then when the investigation finished, they... So, yeah. before you continue, what does exclusion mean? Is he expelled? Is he um, removed? No, so so that's actually a good question. So, exclusion is generally just preventing him. So, exclusion, in, in theory, was just preventing him from um, acting, sort of, as a member of Congress. So voting on things, doing the normal work of Congress. But this is interesting because Powell have ended up suing um, over this. He, he was alleging that this sort of exclusion, which only required 50, or 50 a simple majority of the Congress to approve, was tantamount to an expulsion. So an expulsion was removing him from Congress, and exclusion is just preventing him from actually acting in Congress, really. So, were they preventing him from like voting on yeah, bills were, and resolutions? They were preventing him from really taking any of the actions that a normal congressman can take. So he wasn't being he was he was also censured as well. So he wasn't really allowed to speak on the floor. He wasn't really allowed to vote. He had his chairmanship removed. They were effectively trying to prevent him from acting as a congressman. And this effectively, he said, was tantamount to expelling him from Congress. But he he was claiming that, that rather than expelling him from Congress, because they expulsion requires two thirds of, of of the Congress to approve, or rather the House to approve the 
motion to expel, exclusion only required 50% of the vote. So Powell, when he sued, argued, well, all of the way that they're actually treating him is tantamount to an expulsion, and it required two-thirds vote, which hadn't happened, so he should have been but, allowed to vote and do all this. Yeah. But I, I was reading the fact pattern. Wasn't the vote actually like overwhelmingly in favor of excluding him? So well, so that's it's strange because, as I understand it, it was. However, the courts, when they reviewed it, said, well... The motion that was made was to exclude, not to expel, and it's not clear that if the motion had been to expel, that there would have been such substantial support. So it's actually it's kind of weird because it seems to me that this shouldn't have been a question that the court had actually heard at all, but they decided it wasn't necessarily a political question. They decided that they had the ability to sort of review it, and they said basically, look, we're, we're not going to try to guess at whether or not the vote on exclusion would have mapped perfectly to expulsion. We're just saying that this effectively was an expulsion, and because of that, it should have had a two-thirds vote. And because even the, because it simply just, they made the wrong motion, and, and they weren't going to, the court wasn't going to play the game of, well, they would have had enough votes, or they wouldn't have had, they were just saying, no, you didn't do the right procedure at all for what you were actually doing, so... We're, we're not going to, we're, we're going to invalidate this sort of action, which I, I don't necessarily think was the right outcome, but yeah, it was kind of, it's a, it's a weird case in that, so the, the court basically said, look, the only way that the court said, basically the Congress was trying to judge uh, Powell based on sort of his fitness as a congressman because of his defamation suit and because of his charges of corruption and those were all things that go to his qualifications as an officer or rather as a, as a member of congress and under article 1 section 5 of, uh, of the constitution the only way to sort of according to the court the only way to judge a member's qualifications in that sense is to make a motion to expel, expel and then in the process of voting on the expulsion Congress decides whether or not a person is qualified, but you can't judge a person's qualifications or you or, or credit a person's qualifications or rather their lack thereof in a motion to um, exclude. You could only do it through a motion to expel. Um, and because, well, yeah, just to add to that, once they've met the threshold qualification in the Constitution, then you have to do it through a motion to expel. Right. And. And nobody was, so none of the allegations that were made against Powell were claiming that he didn't have the qualifications to actually sit in Congress. Um, they yeah, were claiming but, more his, like, character was inappropriate for a congressman. Yes, but Congress still retains his right to judge elections under majority rule. Right, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So they didn't, they didn't touch on that. What they did say, though, was, look, if you are going to say somebody's character isn't good enough, that's not one of those qualifications to be a congressman that's mentioned um, sort of as the same as being of the right age or being, you know, actually in the district that you said you're running for and all of these sort of other procedural things. But if you're saying, well, this person just is a bad guy and we don't like him and we're going to throw him out for that reason, then if all other, if for all other reasons he would have been a valid congressman, then the only proper motion to to, to remove him couldn't be an uh, an exclusion. It had to be an expulsion, and then 
the court at that point was like, look, regardless of how many votes you may have gotten for the exclusion, we don't know how many votes you would have gotten for the expulsion because you didn't do an expulsion motion. And we're not going to play the guessing game of because you had a lot of votes for an ex uh, exclusion, you would have gotten a lot of votes for an expulsion. We're just going to say because you did it wrong, we're invalidating that action. So in the end, he was allowed to take back his seat. He didn't necessarily, I don't think he got his chairmanship back, although I, I could be wrong because it was within the power of the, of the caucus and, and the party to remove him from a chair. Um, but he was allowed to take his seat um, and serve out the rest of his terms. Um, that being said, so the court case was decided in 1969 and he left Congress in 1971. So while he was allowed back, it didn't seem as though he was necessarily welcome and was kind of removed rather quickly. But yeah, I just personally, I think this is kind of an interesting uh, look into the way that procedural powers can be like actively like they're not just sort of dry stagnant things like when a committee is really upset with how its chairman acts it can act to change the rules of the committee or if the party is really upset with how somebody is acting they can change the rules to punish that person so i i mean it's, it's an interesting look at how like parliamentary rules are very much living rules they're not just sort of set in, set in stone forever and they adjust to sort of suit yeah, so, needs. So what was actually interesting is when he was excluded, he won the special election to take a seat. Be oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it should be mentioned that throughout all of this, he his constituency continued to re-elect him. It wasn't like this was yes. only known in D.C. that he was corrupt or any of this. No, like, it was, it was, it was well known. It was publicized. But his constituents kept sending him back so yes he was completely uh at least oh but apparently the year after he re regained his seat he was not returned to congress because he lost the primary election yeah so I, eventually his luck ran out but but it, it, again it to be clear though by all accounts even though he might have had some corruption charges and he had some interesting ways of dealing with his defamation suit he was a pretty strong civil rights advocate he did like, he wasn't, like, an altogether horrible uh, congressman. And and it's interesting, One I believe the subcommittee chair who was investigating him also, like, so one of the major criticisms of Powell was that his wife was on his payroll without doing any work. But, but one of the committee members who was investigating him, I believe, also had a wife on his payroll who was doing a questionable amount of work, too. And as I understand it, that wasn't necessarily an odd practice, nor was taking a lot of flights. It was... It, it really just seems to be a culmination of so many bad things rather than one or two that really kind of brought him down and made him sort of disdained by the rest of his party to a point where they no longer were even willing to like support his chairmanship and, and were trying to actively throw him out of Congress, basically. Yeah, but I mean, apparently he was instrumental to the passage of the Civil Rights Act exactly. and the Voting Rights Act. So, like, he, but... he was, by all accounts... A, a decent a, a, even more than decent um legislator an important civil rights figure but perhaps not altogether all around perfect cool is there any concluding remarks you want to make chris um no i know i just thought it was very interesting it was just you know you don't generally see these sort of like crazy sort of uh, 
anti-chairmanship action, and when I saw it, I was just kind of stunned, and I thought it was worth, you know, hearing about. Cool. So the issue I wanted to mention was just, uh, I was... I was reading the majority opinion and the dissent in one of the uh, Donald Trump tax return cases. So in this case, it was basically Donald Trump suing uh, one of his accounting firms to prevent them from complying with a subpoena from the House of Representatives looking for his tax returns. Uh, and then the original district court ruled that the the accounting firm had to comply, so then Donald Trump appealed, and this was the decision of the circuit court on whether or not the accounting firm has to comply with the subpoena. And here, basically, the there were two judges in the majority that were appointed by essentially Democratic presidents, and one judge in the minority who was actually appointed by so Donald th- Trump. So this was wasn't an in bank hearing, I guess. Oh, the, at the district court, or you mean at the what what level was at this? the circuit court? Okay. Circuit court. It's a panel. Okay. So just a three-judge panel at the circuit court. I believe this case was directly appealed now to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he was looking for an embank, but maybe I'm mistaken. Anyway, so the majority opinion basically held that Congress can use their legislative authority to gain the president's tax returns. Uh, previously, basically, there was a discussion of previous past precedent of the Supreme Court. So, for example, one of the first cases that dealt with congressional subpoenas in the Supreme Court was Kilburn v. Thomas. This was decided in the 1880s. Basically, the court held that Congress inquiries are fine as long as they they do not invade areas constitutionally reserved to the courts or the executive. Uh, They can't deal... They have to deal with subjects on which Congress could validly legislate. The resolution authorizing the investigation must specify a congressional interest in legislating on the subject. And the last point is when there, where the inquiry of Congress can result in no valid legislation, then uh, the private affairs individuals are not valid target for congressional inquiry. That was the holding of the court in the 1880s. So this was a case that affirmed congressional subpoenas, but limited them in a sense. However, later cases basically deferred to Congress in their congressional subpoenas. So in McGrain v. Doherty, uh, the court basically allowed for a subpoena issued to the brother of the Attorney General for bank records relevant to a Senate's investigation into the Department of Justice. And then similarly in the case Sinclair v. United States, which was two years later, uh, the Senate was investigating into a fraudulent lease, or allegedly fraudulent lease from Sinclair, or to Sinclair by the federal government, and Sinclair was a president of an oil company. Uh, Sinclair refused to answer a question, and this was one of the times where the Senate basically held somebody in contempt of the Senate for refusing to answer questions. And... um, the Supreme Court held that it was it, it was able to do that because it was doing this as part of a it wasn't doing this as part of a criminal investigation. It was as just part of a matter of concern to the United States and that basically Congress can do things that even though 
if they were done in isolation, they would be something that's the purview of the executive to do criminal investigations. But Congress is allowed to do something that where they're investigating how to, for example, legislate a better way that might touch upon criminal subjects. But even though that's not their that's not the reason why they're doing this. They're not doing this to incidentally, they can do these sorts of things, but not directly. Yes. So, so they're not doing this as part of a criminal investigation. They're doing this as part of in investigation, how to like, for example, one of the investigation they could do is how to prevent this fa- happening in the future or like what legislation they should do to remedy these things, which is something that they can legislate on. But Congress isn't allowed to do a criminal investigation, for example. Uh, so in light of all these past precedents, the panel held that Donald Trump's tax records were a valid legislative inquiry and could be subpoenaed by the congressional committees. And therefore they allowed the subpoenas to proceed. And they denied the preliminary injunction preventing his accountants from issuing the tax records to the congressional committee committee i'm curious is there did you come across what the definition or whether whether this sort of legislative purpose sort of thing was defined what what was the exact wording of it it was uh i mean the legislative purpose asserted by the committee is they want to essentially prevent fraud or any other sort of things in the income tax process and as the committee whose job is to recommend changes to tax law they could for example right. change how taxes are audited or something like that so was that the opinion of the majority then that this was valid within the legislative realm because knowing the president's particular tax records would be helpful in preventing fraud generally in tax records or i think the majority actually said that it's not necessary to decide whether or not it had to be done under the legislative authority or not. It's just that it was something that could plausibly be done under it. Uh-huh. And yeah. therefore it was allowed. Um, basically. I, I'm, I'm curious. I have, I think that that seems interesting to me. I, it seems strange to me that like I could understand why Congress would have a reason to subpoena perhaps general income tax records of a random sampling of people or perhaps records of a particular person known to have already committed fraud and thus wanting to look at somebody's fraudulent returns sort of forensically. But it seems strange to me that, or it seems unfair to me that a random person, not a random person, but a particular person could be targeted by a congressional investigation without sort of any prior proof that there was fraud or any sort of just well it's it's, well yeah to address your point is the committee is subpoenaing these powers but also i mean there's laws on the books that say that a committee can the chair can request any person's tax records if they want it to right um so I'm not sure discuss- I think that's fair either, to be honest. I don't really but, see what particular purpose, or I don't see what legislative purpose or otherwise, or oversight purpose, the committees could have to take a particular person's tax records who was apparent, who, who hasn't been otherwise convicted of violating the tax code. 
Because it seems to me that if the purpose is to have a better understanding of, say, let's say, wealthier Americans' tax records, you could subpoena a sample of tax records without personal identifiers being attached at all. I don't understand what the relevance would be to knowing a particular, like, having a person without having personal information redacted. I don't see what the individual congressmen need to know a, a, a particular person's records. Like, it... it I understand that it could be allowed, but... but I think that's a political question. Okay. Like, well, it's a law that was passed at some point. No other Congress has ever changed the law, and now it's a political question about whether or not those records should be released or should be given to perhaps. Congress by Congress. It shouldn't be a I'm also question. concerned that this panel was... Was it a two-to-one decision, I'm guessing? Yes. And I'm concerned that the two people who were deciding it were... Um, appointed by Democrats, and the one who had dissented was appointed by a Republican. I think, but I mean, we the Republican really that appointed that. the public that appointed the dis- dissenting vote was Donald Trump. Oh, well, that's not great look either. I would have. <sighs> I think some judges maybe should have excused themselves if they were appointed by the person who is being investigated, uh, or recused themselves rather. And I mean, maybe a different judge should have been appointed, but still. I mean, are you going to have this two? Are you going to then say that two justices of the Supreme Court should recuse themselves if this comes to the Supreme uh, Court? Honestly, I don't necessarily think that would be the worst idea. I think it's pretty hard to say. You know, granted, we like to pretend that judges are somehow above like these sort of, you know, sort of petty loyalties, but I don't really. Judges recuse themselves if they've heard a case in the. So, a Supreme Court justice, recent Supreme Court justice, but regularly this happens supreme court justices who either try litigated a lower court issue that's now coming up to the supreme court who sat on the court and heard a lower court opinion before they were elevated to the supreme court do recuse themselves from these issues and they do it seems to me that this is within the similar realm of interested um litigation if you were appointed by somebody hand-picked by this person to be on the supreme court then there's no way that you should be allowed to sit and judge that person because you're clearly, even if you're the most, you know, morally upright person, there's sort of the imprint or the of interest of, of, of conflict. I don't think that that's appropriate. I mean, do you think that they can't judge like senators? Like for example, Kavanaugh was, had a pretty slim majority. I think it's a little different. I mean, yeah, him. I could see how my logic would extend to that, but I think it's a little bit different to say, look at a, a Senator's record. Um, although even still, like I could see, I, granted, I don't think they should be forced to do any of this, but I could see like, let's say um, a Supreme court justice, during their confirmation hearings faced a particularly aggressive sort of grilling by a senator. And, you know, I I could see where it would be difficult and it would probably make any decision look less than entirely above reproach if that senator was then, you know, had, had a case go all the way up to the Supreme Court and was being tried by somebody who they had grilled and like accused like like so like Clarence Thomas was accused of, of sexual assault I believe uh, 
during his confirmation hearings, um, as were several other justices recently. And, and I could see that if I were that justice and I was faced with like uh, a senator who would be who who was one of these accusers of me of these sort of horrible crimes, like it would be easy for me and certainly for the general public looking at me to say, well, clearly you are not at your best or you're least self-interested. Like clearly you're not going to be able to render a completely fair judgment, even if you say you are, because subconsciously I have a hard time believing you're not affected by the actions of this Senator. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it is a little problematic, but I think it's of a different sort of category as you are like you're handpicked and groomed by the president and his staff when you're deciding like when he's picking you the Supreme Court justice. And I think that's slightly different, especially in the traditional sort of appointment process where when the president appoints somebody, then the Senate approves them. But granted, these days that's a little bit different. And so the norms are changing. And, and nowadays it is more important. Like senators are like voting down appointments more often and things like that. So I don't know. It's a tricky question. But it's also kind of leading us far astray from, from yeah, that's true. Point. But anyway, just to finish this up, um, I just want to clarify one thing: the yep. legislative versus other powers was actually a matter in a different case. I confused it with this case. In this case, they actually did decide that it was a legislative power that they were trying to look for um, the legislative powers of the House to get these to issue these subpoenas. And, like, the, the majority did review, like, resolutions passed by the House and what they authorized the committees to do. And they found that, yes, it was sufficient for right. issuing these subpoenas and that they are within the purview of the legislative branch to do. Yeah, yeah I have no uh, doubt that there is legislation passed that would support that. So it's, it's not that I find it – it's not that I think not that legislation, they necessarily but wrong on the law. It was – this was done just by the House's inherent powers to subpoena records. Um so this particular thing oh yeah um, I, I don't even necessarily think that they're wrong on the law here in terms of what exists and what the case law is i just think that long term it sets a bad precedent to say hey if we don't like somebody we can and i know that it already happens because i know that the obama administration and i'm sure other past administrations have intentionally targeted people to audit but i i, I don't it makes me uncomfortable to have any legislation go after or any act of a legislator or a legislative body aim particularly and exclusively at a single person for reasons that may or may not be politically motivated. Granted, I think that if you asked um, the committees who are doing this investigation, they would say that this isn't a political issue, it's a matter of national security. But I that think was that also that's a slippery part slope. of their concern, I guess. Yeah. But anyway. Just to talk about the dissent, the dissent here argues that basically whenever Congress seeks information about the president's wrongdoing, it does not matter whether the investigation has a legis also has a legislative purpose. That's a quote from the dissent. So basically, the, the dissent argues that basically the only power of Congress to seek information about the president is through the impeachment uh, process. So the House, however, has a separate power to investigate pursuant to impeachment, which always be understood as a limited judicial power to hold certain impeachable officials accounting for wrongdoing. So my the interesting theory I have here now is if the House can only get this information because of their impeachment power, 
The House has the power to impeach a president. The Senate has the power to try the impeachment and convict if they decide to. What this means to me is that if the only power that actually allows for getting this information from the executive branch is through impeachment, that means the Senate is powerless in a sense to get any information if the House does not want to agree to it. So what I mean by that is if the Senate is seeking like, to investigate the president, but the House doesn't want to do that, they can just not agree to that. And because now if the courts hold that this is only a power available through impeachment, unless the House passes an impeachment onto the Senate, then the Senate has less power than the House because the House could always invoke impeachment powers without actually impeaching anyone. And then the Senate would, would be without power to really investigate the president. Mm. I... I don't... I mean, like, I, I... I'm not entirely sure that that's how I would read this. It seems to me that... So... It seems more like it's saying the House has the ability to sort of make these sorts of investigations only in the course of an impeachment, but it doesn't seem like that necessarily would prevent the Senate from also uh, subpoenaing records during its trial process. Yes, it can do it during a trial process. But only but if don't... the House first passes the impeachment on to the Senate by impeaching someone. If they don't do a trial, as in the House never passes an impeachment, like, for example, the House is controlled by one party and the Senate by the other party, let's say the Senate is controlled by the party opposite of the president, that chamber would be without power to investigate the president at all. Um, I'm not sure if that's correct either, because is so is it, our, our House... So what I guess within the logic of this dissent, then if, if if the dissent is saying the only time you're allowed to look at the president's wrongdoings is under the veil of an impeachment investigation, then I guess sure that that then your logic work that then I guess that would be the logic of, of this all. But but I also don't think that dissent is right. That doesn't seem right at all. <laughs> yeah. No. I. I don't think this is the right dissent. I'm just saying that oh, okay. yeah, yeah, if okay. f- it would, I would think it would dramatically change the balance of power between the House oh. and Senate, at least oh, in some oh, respect. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't think so. To that point, I don't think it would dramatically change that because ha- uh, impeachments are irregular and uncommon. Well, that's what is current. I think it I would mean, rule it would remain common. God forbid impeachment becomes regular because that would be a very bad thing. <laughs> For, imagine uh, imagine you have like a in our later later in our lives imagine there's like some news article that says the president has been impeached for the 50th time yeah. since the start of the term that, that wouldn't be a good look but it'd be more i mean like it'd be more like i think it'd be unlikely that the president would be the one to be targeted with these things i think it's more likely that the house if impeachments would become more common i think it would be aimed at presidential appointees as a way of saying we don't like that this person did a policy thing on behalf of the president that we don't approve of for, so we're going to impeach them yeah which i think would be no, i get thing. you yeah but hopefully that doesn't i also happen. don't think that that's the way that things are happening uh, so and just to just add one more case there's also um just to make sure we mention this there's trump v deutsche bank where they're also seeking tax returns and other information from Deutsche Bank about Trump, 
and here basically even though the um trump is suing in his private capacity not as his uh not as president they're not seeking information from the time he was president um still the the it was held that they need to weigh the privacy interests of the president and not and not like causing a distraction versus the public interest and there the court also held that the committee should get their um, subpoena documents from Deutsche Bank yeah that one seems correct to me I don't see yeah. how the president I, I, I don't really care if the president feels distracted if he's been prior to his election as president any president if he was committing crimes prior to his election uh, he should be investigated during his term in office and Frankly, if he, you know, feels distracted, well, too bad. You shouldn't have, you know, done things that were with, uh, which, you know, a grand jury would consider worth investigating. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, that is the tax return cases that hopefully we get a actual Supreme Court ruling on so that we can actually figure out what the true and fair way that these cases can be decided and what is actual congressional power in the future i really hope i really hope there is a final determination from the supreme court on this issue well i don't think there's ever a final determination on anything the court does but it would be nice to have a a clear opinion sure yeah i also i believe there will be opinions yeah there will be at least opinions released this by this summer about these cases because i think they were they the supreme court gave them like an expedited appeal schedule and i think they might have already argued before the court well if if, if i remember my uh, supreme court math correctly uh, i think we already know how this how these issues would will turn out so you think they're gonna vote against releasing the returns uh partisan party lines I didn't say parties mm-hmm. because apparently or we like to pretend that Supreme Court members don't play political games, but I'll say partisan, <laughs> which is effectively the same thing. But uh, do you think they're going to hold I, that? I do think it'll be it'll be split along um, political lines. Yes. Wow. I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, look at Bush v. Gore, right? I mean, Bush v. Gore, they had. Maybe on its face. I'm not necessarily no, certain a, how. It was an atrocious ruling. Oh, really? I mean, like, if you're a fan of Scalia, and maybe you thought that it was a good ruling, but um, having having had to read it in my con law class, um, I don't see why the court felt the need to interfere with the state uh, attorney general's. I think it was the state attorney general's decision to continue... Um, the voting uh, or counting of the votes. I don't see why it was appropriate for the court to just to weigh in at all. Gotcha. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But I think that we'll see a similar sort of political interference by a allegedly apolitical branch. <laughs> I guess we'll see. I'm actually curious how like people like. Uh, Gorsuch, for example, and Roberts vote on this. Yeah, maybe. But uh, I'm also, I mean, yeah. I don't think all liberals are also in favor of just blatantly dwell, d- 
delving into people's private lives by a political process. No, I mean, but, but I don't think that... Much as I don't think that people... Even a person occupying the office of presidency should be allowed to be individually inspected. I think that many people could see the logic in being allowed to investigate the president simply because somebody in that office has to be sort of, um, it's important to make sure that they're not being bribed or they weren't previous to the president being bribed by anybody or taking handouts from enemies of the nation because, uh, well, um, it's not a good look and it's potentially a breach of national security. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, do you have any closing remarks, Chris? Um, no, I think we've about covered it. Okay, cool. With that, that's the end of episode six of Parliamentary Procedure with Chris and Victor. I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, thank you very much and hope all of you have a good day.